Hello, everyone. It is Wednesday, the 28th of June, 2017. My name is Luke Thomas, and this is the promotional malpractice live chat here on, well, I don't know how high I'm going to get this microphone, here on MMAfighting.com. Thank you so much for joining me today. We'll go for about 90 minutes talking about the latest and greatest in the world of mixed martial arts, a few other semi-related topics. Uh, best place to get your questions in is where this window is embedded on MMAfighting.com. You may also tweet me at LThomasNews and use the hashtag chat rappers um, to get noticed. We'll discuss, let's see, we'll do a put a bow on Bellator NYC, OKC, UFC OKC, I should say. Um, we'll take a look at what's coming up at the week ahead. There is that um, the PFL inaugural event or what, you know, the World Series of Fighting Zombie, whatever you want to call it. And then, of course, next week after that is UFC 213, which, um, thanks to uh, my reporting and, and which was uh, very greatly aided, I should say, by Ariel Hawani, uh, that card has changed substantially. But the UFC 214 card is all of a sudden looking pretty good. So um, I guess, you know, not the end of the world. In any case, all those topics are up for grabs. Anything else as well, just give me your questions and we'll get to them. Now, your boy got up early this morning, had a bunch of work to do. And then went to the gym just now, so I haven't had a chance to properly. People ask me what kind of creatine I take. I take the Nutrex creatine drive, which is CreaPure, which is a way of purifying monohydrate. You want a recommendation on creatine, this is a good one. Do not get anything that promises, I mean, you can get flavored if you want. I just take monohydrate. But do not get anything that promises like this will have an oxygenating effect as well as being typical creatine monohydrate or promises some other kind of benefit beyond what creatine monohydrate offers. There is no such thing. None of those studies show that any of that stuff works. Creatine monohydrate, on, on the other hand, between two, but ideally five grams a day, um, there is innumerable amount of studies that show it is a great, great supplement. Not a replacement for training, but a good supplement. Yeah? Okay. And by the way, dude bros, if you're lifting in the gym, here's a, here's a little recommendation from Uncle Luke to you donkeys. I do not recommend max repping on bench press with dumbbells. I'm not saying that I'm an expert on this, but I've seen it twice now. And I saw a guy today, I don't know if he tore his pec, but he was, you know, ugh. Uh, you should do around 80 to 90% of your one rep max, uh, I think on dumbbells. I think after that you begin to lose control. They begin to go wide. And when they would go wide, you begin to get rotator cuff issues. Whereas with the bench, uh, I mean, yes, the good benefits of dumbbells are you can drop them if they're too heavy, but the bench doesn't open up your shoulder like that unless you really have lost total control. I think there's an additional risk from a motion standpoint with the dumbbells. And I saw a moron today injure himself one rep maxing with dumbbells. Don't do that. My recommendation, but I'm sure you can find a coach to tell you differently. All right. Let's do this. Um, let's go to the questions, shall we? Okay. First question. Hi, Luke. A few questions about UFC OKC. All right. In his post-fight interview with Fox, Michael Chiesa said he stopped hand fighting so that he could flex his neck and burn Lee's arms out. 
what could his rational rationale be behind this explanation? He did not go limp, but he was clearly on the brink of tapping going out. I wouldn't call it an excuse since Kiesa appears to be an honest guy. I agree. But the explanation struck me as a weird one. To stop hand fighting is the clearest sign of what inevitably comes next. All right, so let's start there. So what he's saying is he wanted to bring his chest up and his neck out, right, to put force against um, Kiesa, or, uh, Lee's choke to create space underneath. Now, I will just say that I don't – there's a couple possibilities here. And I want to say a couple of possibilities. I'm not exactly clear which one it is. You can make up your own mind. To me, here's what it looked like. This is what my best guess is. And this is just a guess. My guess is that <clears throat> that was a deep choke. Lee had a bicep grip, switches to Gable. And if you saw the Monday Morning Analyst, we talked about this. It's almost not quite identical because um, I think the grip was different when he did it. But you often see, guys, when you get the Gable grip, you don't want to leave it by the ear. You kind of want to tuck it behind. And then you want to put the hands and the weight face down to the extent you can without losing proper control of the choke. That way it makes it harder to hand fight, right? If your hands are here, you can hand fight. If the hands are back here, it's just hard to hand fight, right? So you're trying to do that. So when he does that, he's hand fighting, and then the hands come out in front, which is a common thing when someone's about to go out. My sense is that he was on the verge of going out, and then when he got released, he woke right back up, and I don't think he remembers it. Now, that's my assessment. I don't know if that's true. Only Michael Chiesa knows if that's true, and he might not even realize it because sometimes you can go out and not realize it. It's very hard to say exactly what happened, but that's my best guess. But what he's talking about is doing this or like, you know, straining your, the size of your neck out. I can't do that. To me, that's not a real, to me, to me, to me, to me. I'm not talking about Michael Chiesa. To me, that's not going to stop a deep choke, and it's not going to stop a deep choke by somebody who's good at it. Um, so is that possible? It is certainly possible. And only Michael Chiesa I think only Michael Chiesa only really knows. And I like Michael a lot, so I got to be very careful about this. I don't want to say something that sounds like I know I know exactly what happened. I don't know exactly what happened. All I can do is sort of ascertain like you can from the video footage. All I'm going to say is trying to strain your neck and putting your chest up to create force outwardly. I mean, that's – if the choke is, you know, somewhat misapplied, you might be getting – get a little air but you still have to keep hand fighting you know it's not one or the other and to me when the hands and his eyes close too and now the, the eyes closing thing is that's not exactly a telltale sign because people can close their eyes to like concentrate you know um but to me that you stop the hand fighting you know it's like one thing if you stop the hand fighting then you go under the elbow or you stop the hand fighting but your hips are trying to turn to the mat so, something right there's got to be something there and to me, if you're just relying on neck flexing, I, you know, your neck muscles are never going to beat someone's bicep and forearm crunch. It's never, it's never, it's ne it'll buy you a couple of seconds. So maybe that's, maybe, you know, again, it's, it's the problem with the stoppage, as I mentioned, the Monday morning analyst, it's not a bad stoppage. It's not a good stoppage. It's certainly far from ideal, but it's not, it's not that bad. You know, if someone's hand fighting and then they stop hand fighting and the hands kind of float out front, I mean, that is, that is a telltale sign that something's about to go you know, very unequivocally in one direction to me. Um, so I understand what he's saying. There are some other defenses that go beyond merely hand fighting, but those should be a complement to hand fighting, not a substitute for hand fighting or some other, if you're going to drop the hands, then push on the legs to get room for your hips, you know, so, some other kind of last ditch effort, but I don't know how you can defend a choke 
with just your neck and chest position. Like you got to get your hands in motion. Um, so to me, you know, I'm a little less sympathetic to that argument. Now you also write, secondly, in the MMA hour, Kevin Lee described his choke. I had him on yesterday on my show as well, and how it was different from Herrig's choke on Justine Kish. He called his a blood choke and Herrig's a pain choke. Right, he did. Can you explain these two in more detail since the way both fighters applied them on Saturday looked virtually identical? Right, okay. So there's different kinds of chokes you can do. Um, and depending on someone's neck and depending on the squeeze, sometimes they can be a little of both, right? But what he is talking about is a proper rear naked choke, and they don't have to be this way, but a, let's say a, a, a totally ideal scenario a, a opponent who's not resisting, what would a rear naked choke look like? The, the, the hand would slither through such that the elbow center, right here, that's where the elbow would go. Then that would grab the near bicep. You take this hand and you actually look at it. You don't do this and push the head because you can, a lot of reasons. One, it's not very powerful. And two, uh, you can get your knuckles slammed into your face if they're resisting with their head. It's not what you do. You actually look at your palm and you close it. And what he does is some people said he bit his glove. Maybe he bit, but this is common too. And I think Misha Tate did this. You lock it with your chin. Now, some guys have different squeezes. I like a lat squeeze in where my shoulders go back. And imagine, imagine trying to stop someone from tickling you. What would you do? Right? You would drop your shoulders. Right? You engage your lats. So I like to do that and then kind of roll them back. That's that's the way I prefer. A lot of people will tell you to scissor your elbows. That's another way you can do it. Um, and a little bit of bicep flexion will go into it. That that would be that would be where the elbow is centered, right in the middle, right down the middle. That would be uh, a rear naked choke. What he is talking about with Justine Kish is something where the the forearm and the and the elbow are not dead center, where they're kind of angled off. So rather than cutting off the carotid arteries with bicep and forearm, what's happening is you're getting this Adam's apple driven deep back into your throat. Now that can also collapse one side, right? Um, sometimes you can collapse both sides and the middle, depending on someone's mechanics. But what he's talking about is rather than cutting off the blood, where even if you get air with that choke, it doesn't matter. If you cut off the blood, they're going out, which is why I think the hands went like that, right? What he's talking about with Justine Kish er, and, and Felice Herrig is that it the elbow was not centered. It was off to the side, meaning it was this Adam's apple being driven to the back of your throat, which I can tell you is in fact extremely painful. Now, I think it was a couple though. She did have a rear naked choke a little off center uh, and then kind of switched it up a little bit. So I think Kevin Lee is, 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 is mostly right there. That's the difference. You can get a lot of chokes that come here, right? It's under the chin, but what's happening is you're pressing on the Adam's apple. That's very different than closing here. You hear my voice change, right? I'm even getting dizzy thinking about it. All right, let's see if I can do it. If you do this, <laughs> this is kind of stupid, but if you close this, you see my face. I got a little dizzy. That's a blood choke. Yeah, that's what that is. That's not the same thing as an air choke off the Adam's apple that can that can stop your breathing and just cause an extraordinary amount of discomfort. One of the more painful chokes with the gi, in my judgment, it's you might say is a is a uh, bow and arrow choke because you get that lapel that comes right across the throat and it can just really slash you up. To me, it's the Ezekiel choke. And the reason why this Ezekiel choke is the same thing what Kevin Lee is talking about. I'm going to grab my own gi 
and I'm going to roll my hand over. Now you can make a fist, you can make whatever you want, and you're going to drive it directly into the Adam's apple, and you're going to drive it. That you're going to, I mean, you're going to try and hammer that thing through the back of their neck, right? Uh, it hurts. It hurts real bad. Uh, that's that's sort of what he's talking about. So it's a blood choke versus an air choke. Now again, there can be a lot of different varieties. You can have a blood choke where the elbow is slightly off center. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be perfectly dead center. But I'm just saying, in an ideal scenario, elbow right down the middle, bicep, forearm, bicep grip. You look at your own palm. You come here. You tuck it, right? So there's no hand fighting. You put your head to their head. And I like to go lat down and back. That's what I like to do. But everyone's got a little their own nice little touch to finish. There you go. All right. Question about Nikki Holtzkin just announced in Holland that he really wants to fight on the UFC Holland card since he is no champion with glory. He apparently is a free agent and would really love to fight in the Holland card. Also tweeted Dana White. Well, Nikki Holtzkin is a badass. I mean, his uh, I was there for his first fight with Raymond Daniels. God damn. Nikki Holtzkin is a monster. I don't know what kind of ground training he has, though. I'll be honest. Um, so I guess we'll see. I uh, hope that helped with the explanation. Uh, hey, Luke. Hello. WME IMG have owned the UFC for nearly 12 months now. So I would like to know, number one, how do you feel their first year <laughs> Their first year has gone? Not money. Uh, well, you know, that's not totally true, actually. What are the best and worst decisions they've made based on what you've seen over the last 12 months? Are you confident these are the right people to take the UFC brand and MMA to the next level? Okay. A couple of things. So uh, how do you feel... Now that the first year has gone, I'm not quite as, believe it or not, I'm not actually as negative as some of my colleagues are about this. I still feel like these are people working out the kinks, um, that this is a down year no matter who would be in charge. Um, so partly I feel like whatever woes we're experiencing, partly, uh, are inevitable. So they took over after you, what, UFC 200-ish, something somewhere along the lines there. Uh, I forget the exact date, um, but you know they they had a lot of good things going for them. Now, part of that was just that transition team that you could say was responsible for UFC 205. But whatever the case, there were some good moments at the end of 2016, and there have been some decent fights here in 2017. There's just been nothing really special. So, how do I feel that the first year is gone? I don't know that we can make a ton of super large assessments, other than to say. Um, I think getting rid of some of those per key personnel was probably a little questionable. Questionable. I question to what extent they are properly marketing their fighters. Whatever concerns you might have had under the uh, Fertitta regime, this one, th those concerns seem to be even more magnified now. Um, and I'm very concerned to see how they're going to fix that. Now you say, what are some of the best and worst decisions they've made? Okay. So again, I think some of the personnel being let go was bad. I do think that they have partly changed their production crew, which I think is mostly a good thing. Um, trying to think of some of the good decisions they've made. I mean, to what extent it's hard to attribute the ownership to some of the things that Conor McGregor was able to do, you know, and what they were putting together for UFC 205. I mean, a lot of that was just a holdover crew, so I don't know how much you can really say about that. Um, I think some of the questionable decisions would be really don't know if it I'm not, I'm not declaring it to be true i'm a little bit 
wondering about this um, UFC Performance Institute. I mean, I know some of those motions, some of that was already in motion, but I really don't know about that. It's not exactly a WME decision, but it's not one they got in the way of, and they got in the way of some other ones. Um, I think that, you know, that retreat, they've done those before the fighter summits, but this other one had like a WME trimmings on it. And I don't think they really understood who they were dealing with. That seemed questionable. Um, taking out the loan in the UFC's name to pay back some debts so that they could, because it was not, it was not part of the original loan, uh, group. It was through the UFC itself. So they were able to do that to uh, get some of the earnings they were entitled to. Um, uh, based on certain rates of return that they, if, you know, if you made some certain debt obligations, you got some certain returns. That's a little questionable. But I think the big one is going to be whether or not it made sense to let Connor fight uh, Floyd. And the truth is, no one really knows if that's the right answer or not. I don't. I don't know what the right answer is. I really don't. Um, I guess some people know what the right answer is, but here's what I mean: If this all goes well, you know, I'm not saying Connor. Let's say Connor wins. Obviously, goes really well. But if he doesn't, but you know, it's as we talked about before. Like it's a moral victory. It's no harm, no foul. Plus, they get a bunch of cash. Um, then it'll probably be no big deal. But if something really bad happens. And God forbid something tragic happens, um, either to Connor or to the sport itself. I think we'll look back on that decision as a really, really bad one. Um, so we don't know the answer to that yet. I, I think that, I think that to me is really the big one. Is to what extent was um, you know? I also think a bad one was putting Ronda against um, Amanda Nunes. That seemed like a real bad call, man. Um, no tune-up whatsoever. Uh, and thinking that Amanda had no chance, and then Amanda, you know, Amanda just goes in there and smokes her. Uh, that's that's that was a bad one. But I think the real big one is going to be, you know, we had we paid. They, they look, they probably paid. I don't know the UFC is worth four billion. I mean, something is worth whatever you pay for it. But in actuality, in terms of what it can generate and what kind of debt obligation you can really afford, I, I don't really know that they made the right call with that. Uh, and so they're going to make a series of decisions in light of that to pay back those debt obligations and. Um, letting Connor do that, I don't think it's merely about doing that, but it certainly probably greased the skids, and they didn't want to go to court with their biggest star. And let's see how that plays out. Let's see how that plays out because that might end up looking super shrewd, and that or that might looking that might look end up looking really dumb, and and really lacking an understanding of what how you protect your assets. I don't know what the answer is going to be to that. So let's just see how that plays out. But that to me seems like the real. That's where everything is going to hinge is on that one. And you, you can make some other choices, you know, was it, was it wise to get rid of Mark, uh, Mark Goldberg? Um, was it wise to get rid of guys like Jamie Pollock or Marshall Zelaznik or Tom Wright? Um, was it wise to cut staff generally? Was it wise to, you know, you pick, pick your, pick your, uh, gripe. Um, but I, 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 most of those I think are fairly marginal of, in terms of significance. I think the big one is going to be uh, Mayweather McGregor. The loan isn't questionable at all. The Glazers bought Manchester United exactly that way, shifting the entire debt of the purchase on the club right afterwards. Well, they haven't shifted the debt. 
to the UFC. They took out an additional debt in the UFC's name. Also, I don't recall that loan uh, getting not one, but two warnings from regulators that this was a questionable loan, which is exactly what they got at WME. Not one, but two. Two times regulators came back and said, this is raising some alarm bells. Um, not saying that there's a fire, but there are some concerns about the way this loan is structured and how large it is. Um, so I don't recall that happening at all with the loan you're speaking of. Um, okay, this is a good question. I'm going to answer it because I made a tweet about it last night. Everyone took their pants off and swung it around their head like Petey Pablo, like it's a helicopter. Uh, glow and pull-ups. Y'all ask some strange questions. Uh, Luke, what could you possibly enjoy about Glow? A show W slash A, female professional wrestling recruitment premise. Uh, okay, have you guys seen Glow on Netflix? The backdrop is there's it's uh, there's a number of characters, but it's sort of, in my judgment, two or three main ones. But the main protagonist is this woman who's trying to be an actress. is basically a failed version of one. Not that she's bad at it, but she's not particularly remarkable, and she really wants to be an actress on a stage and she can't do it and she and she goes to an audition and she reads a man's part i'm not spoiling much but finally she ends up trying to try out for uh, a professional wrestling tv show and they have to learn how to become wrestlers and that, that, that that's about as much as i'll say um her character is totally interesting uh unique the way in which she plays off another character very close to her which i won't won't ruin is remarkable mark Marin, who is a comic i've enjoyed for a long time i don't listen to his podcast very often but um, his early stand-up, I thought, was great. He is sensational in this. The The professional wrestling aspect is just the backdrop. It's the absurdest backdrop to the show. What really makes it is this great acting, great casting. It's well-written. It's hilarious. Um, and this is about as palatable as pro wrestling is ever going to get to me. So, you know, I'm not going to watch... I'm not going to boycott a good show because it has professional wrestling in it. I'm going to boycott professional wrestling because I don't know how people watch that. Right? I mean... I, I get it. People look at me and say, how can you watch this live chat? How can you watch MMA? Different strokes, different folks. It's not for me. But this is a show about people's lives. And it's a comedy show. And the, the comedic aspects to it are fantastic. Mark Marin is hilarious. So, so that's what I like about it. How many pull-ups can I do? Uh, well, at 275 pounds, I'm good for about 15 or 16, which is not great. But given the weight, I feel I feel okay with that. And I, I do dead hangs. I don't do CrossFit bar swings. I don't kip. I don't bring my knees above my waist. I don't bicycle. I don't do any of that. Dead hangs all the way down, chin above the bar, all the way back down. That's one, right? And anyway, if you do bar swings where you're flopping on top, I mean, you're not doing pull-ups. Those are not pull-ups. I don't, I don't give a damn what anyone from CrossFit tells you. Someone says, Glow is done pretty well, and it's something different. Kind of awkward funny, too. Absolutely. All right. So how about that BJ Penn fight? Oof. Luke, how do you feel about this fight? Uh, was it a total dumpster fire? Yes, pretty close. Sure, BJ looked a little competitive in the first round, but he lost that round. And besides that uppercut he hit in round two, he didn't do much at all and looked completely outmatched by Seaver. At this point, I don't think Jackson Week can do anything to improve him. And he didn't train there for him, by the way. He he didn't finish his first comeback camp there, and he didn't train there at all. Nor was he with Jason Perillo. So I don't know what he was doing. Uh, I hate seeing saying this about fighters, 
But I think it's pretty clear BJ is shot. And I wouldn't favor him against any fighter in the division, including a returning Sean Shirk. Not only that, what was up with the judges' scorecards? One judge actually scored at 28-28. Does that mean the judge thought BJ won the first two and Seaver got a 10-8 in the third? Jesus. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about this. Uh, that was terrible. It was it was terrible to see. And I spoke to his coaches before the Rodriguez fight, and they were like, "This BJ's coming back," and da 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 da. And then he goes in there and just gets torched. And you know, I don't know what they knew, but I find it very hard to believe that they didn't know that was going to happen. So I decided I wasn't going to speak to any of them this time. I'm sure, they're nice guys, but if they're gonna, I can't. If I can't trust you to speak to me candidly about it, then there's no point in having a discussion about it. And I get it. If you want to go out there and protect your guy, believe me, I 1000% get it. You don't want to go and say something about a guy and make him feel even worse or, or whatever, but decline the interview with me, please. Cause I don't, I don't want Baghdad Bob stuff. Um, so this time I did speak to Gary Marinovich who had been, uh, you know, long outside BJ's inner circle for a while. Now he and Marv had done some of his camps with the Kenny Florian fight for the um, Diego Sanchez fight, all the fights where he looked awesome. Uh, Marv Marinovich and Gary Marinovich were his trainers. I spoke to Gary prior to this one, but Gary's thing seemed weird too, man, because he was saying, well, look, BJ didn't look all that great. Okay. But you know, he can be rehabilitated. And I think the way he's been training is improper. And the Marinoviches, I don't know exactly the entire nuances of their system, but the way they explained it to me was, if you think about what a motor unit is, it's essentially like a, say it's a nerve a, 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 a attached to muscle fibers in a group. Right. And, um, you have a bunch of motor, you have a bunch of motor units essentially in that sense, I believe throughout your body, right? Um, we were talking about some things. He, he believes that the way in which you get those things firing to get maximum motor unit recruitment is to do things that get the nervous system firing either rapidly or through speed or through tension, isometrics, but then speed and explosion. And a lot of that ended up being totally, totally right. You know, there was a lot of that was way ahead of its time. You know, if you talk about, uh, I, I did a technique talk with him. If you guys follow Phil DeRue on Instagram, he's training Will Brooks. He's training Kyoji Horiguchi. He's training King Mo. He's training a bunch of guys, uh, Shoe Face. I mean, he trains all these guys at ATT. And you'll see some of the workouts he does. He has them lay on their back and then immediately get up and then charge across the room because, you know, sprinting, changing angles. Um, these are things that produce maximum motor recruitment. And I asked him, I asked Gary, I was like, well, what about, what are your things about the deadlift? He was like, this is terrible for you. But the deadlift is not quite as good as like, you know, for example, medicine ball throws, you know, running one direction and throwing it another, right? Because you're getting different directionality. You're using your core for explosive movement that requires a lot of muscles in a, in a coordinated direction. It's really good for you. But the deadlift, I mean, <laughs> there's a ton of studies to show it's excellent for force development. And he was like, nah, it's terrible for you. And I'm like, mm, I don't know. I'm not sure that I'm not sure that I, I mean, do I know as much as Gary Murnovich? No, but I can point to studies that show that there is a ton of carryover benefit depending on how you use it. In any case, um, didn't help at all or very little anyway, very, very little. Um, was that BJ appreciably better than the one that fought Rodriguez? I mean, he's fighting a much less difficult opposition. And in the third round, he almost got stopped. Came pretty close a couple times. I mean, you know, a shot fighter is one where there's a lot of telltale signs, but one is that they just don't throw back. Now, in the first round, the jab was looking okay. 
Second round, obviously, you mentioned he had that one uppercut, and the jab was looking okay. But in the third round, he just stopped throwing. And, like, really, you know, if you just think about what BJ did back in the day, right, the, the Gomi fight or the first Matt Hughes fight or, I mean, just pick a time where BJ was just outstanding, you know. BJ completely stonewalled people's offenses, and there was always this element of extraordinary danger and tension about BJ because he had a hard jab, he took a shot well, he had big power, um, he had good takedowns, and of course he got you on the ground, it would go from zero to 60 instantaneously. In other words, there was this real element of danger. You just never knew when BJ was going to put someone away fast. You know what I mean? He had so many things to win for. All the things that made BJ BJ, they're not there anymore. And that's understandable. These things are not they don't exist in infinite quantities, right? These are things you only get to do for a certain amount of time in your life. And then you don't have them that anymore, at least not to that extent. Um, and I don't know if he just doesn't realize that or or no one's telling him that or he just, I, I don't know what the problem is. But I don't really know how the UFC can book him in good conscience anymore. You know, I don't know how they can do that because this is, I mean, he's only going to get hurt. I don't know who he can beat on that roster. And everyone's like, well, give him a, you know, okay, Rodriguez fight was a little too much. Give him somebody easier. Okay. They gave him somebody easier. What did you see? I saw a guy who was covering up and aimlessly walking around the octagon in the third round, just taking a beating. Yo, I'm super uncomfortable with this. I don't know how you can, I don't know how you can possibly feel anything else. It's, it's, it's weird. And it's unhealthy and it's not what competition about. This is where the best fight the best. We are so far past that with him. We're now in a position where we're endangering his health without any real reason to do that, right? In any contest, your health is endangered, but there's a reason to believe that you can fight through it or that you have you know, some ability to give yourself to this contest or, or whatever. N none of those things are in play here. So, I, I mean, I just don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what we're waiting for on this one. Um, you know, as for the judges' scorecards, you know, you guys know how I feel about judging. It's a completely fraudulent and totally unscientific exercise where we have close to zero technological aids and we expect people without much revision to make snap judgment calls that they are oftentimes incapable of making, even if they had all those other things. You know, it's just, yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, the scores are weird, but, you know, There's another disparaging comment here about BJ I will not read. Uh, James Gallagher. Good question. I like this. Look, just how good do you think James Cal Gallagher is right now and how far can he go? Do you think he should be next in line for the title? I'm not saying he couldn't fight for it. I'm thinking if he's going to drop down a weight class, you know, let's give him maybe one or two more. I'm not saying he couldn't do it, but I'd just like to see his skill set mature a little bit more. Do you think there's enough competition for him in Bellator? Definitely. Uh, I think, excuse me, I thought his win on Saturday was flawless, pretty close. And I would love to see him competing in the top 10 within the UFC featherweight division if he gets a few more wins in Bellator. With great matchups like Yair, Stevens, Korean Superboy, I think he'll be uh, able to fit in well. Do you think he is someone the UFC should be looking to take now? No. Or do you think they should let him have a few more matches in Bellator to develop? Well, it's not really their choice. I mean... 
he'll go where he wants to go or wherever he's recruited to go, I suppose. But but um, something about James Gallagher, I, he appears to rub some people the wrong way. And here's the truth about James, because uh, I got to know him a lot better this last week. I saw him a bunch in the uh, walking around the city. I saw him a bunch in the lobby. We struck up several conversations. He's a lot different in those scenarios than he is on the microphone. And when he's on the microphone, I'm not saying he's doing shtick, but, you know, he's doing a lot of the, you know, I'm already the main event. You know, let me make sure my audio works. Um, people already here to see me, you know, that kind of thing. And everyone's like, you know, quit borrowing Conor McGregor's act. And it does obviously feel very, very derivative. But here's what I want to say about James. Uh, in getting to know him a little bit better, he is such a nice kid. I'm telling you, it's you don't you don't feel it when you just see him at post fight interviews or pre fight interviews, right? There he's you know I'm not saying he's putting on an act because that, that's part of who he is too, but that's a real narrow glimpse into it. If you just have a casual conversation about it, uh, he's a nice guy. He's a humble guy. He's a prize fighter, but he's also a martial artist. Uh, and he's just a wide-eyed kid from Ireland dreaming big. I, I find him to be very pleasant and easy to like if you get a chance to get a little bit more uh, out of him. And I think one thing he needs to do is if he wants to make those big, bold proclamations, he should do that, especially you know, in a post-fight interview where you just beat Chinzo Machida like it was nothing. But I think it also would serve him if someone's trying to get a little bit more out of him, he should show a little bit more of himself because I think you'd see the same thing I see, which is this is a kid dreaming big, ready to be on the world stage, got a ton of ability, you know, we'll see how far he can go, but um, I don't think the lens of MMA media fight week or post-fight is the proper lens to understand him, whereas Connor had a little bit more ability to calibrate what he wanted to say to who, when he should show himself, when to put up a wall, I think James is still kind of figuring that out. James is also really young. He's 20 for, for you know, crying out loud. Like, he'll get this. But I like the guy. I like the guy a lot. And uh, I think very, very highly of his ability. Now, you asked how good he is. I mean, first of all, obvious war, warrior mentality. I'll make sure this is skipping on me a little bit here. Obvious warrior mentality. Um, I really thought this takedown had great timing, good finish turning the corner, even got a little bit uh, underbalanced, but used that to make a proper turnover. Um, you know, excellent passing, good judgment. He was saying to me that, like, he he could feel Chinzo sitting up, and then rather than trying to do, like, some kind of modified Toriando pass, he just let him come up so he could stick him with a shot, knowing that would put him back down, which then would allow him the opportunity to come around and cut the corner um, to get the pass. So he's got just good MMA judgment. And then from there it was just, you know, he executed on his knowledge of the back and put Shinzo away. So I still think we have a lot to learn. We've never seen someone really put it on him and force him to come back. You know, you can say that about Conor McGregor. Nate Diaz put it on him in that first fight. And then in that third round, that fourth round by Conor McGregor answering that was a big deal. So you still haven't seen that from James. And look, here's the point. He's 20. He's still figuring it out. So like, do I think he will eventually be champion or at a bare minimum contend for a title? I do. But I just feel like we're seeing all this promise and we want to cash in on it. I feel like we should dial it back a little bit and let him breathe, metaphorically, 
and see where he can develop into and then really begin to push into it. And look, what's the point of being 20 years old in Bellator if you're rushing your if you're rushing your challenges? I mean, look at Aaron Pico, right? I mean, they made a tragic error with that. Really poor um really poor matchmaking there. Now, they did everything perfectly Bellator did with Rory McDonald and we all gave them credit for it and they deserve it. They botched this one. You know, there's no point in signing with Bellator if, as a young guy if you're just going to say, I'm ready for the title right away. This is where you want to go to get those reps, to, to get yourself to look good, um, to work through the kinks in your game as you get better and better and better. So think about how good he'll be in like two years, right? Think about how nasty James Gallagher is going to be. That's if you're going to join Bellator, do it in such a way where it allows you to maximize your potential. That's the whole point. If you go to the UFC, you see what happens to Sage Northcutt, man. I don't know if you can. I don't know if you can maximize your potential if you just get chucked right into the deep end. There's, you know, there's there's a cost associated with that. Um, let's pump the brakes on James, not because we don't think highly of him, but because we think highly of him. Someone says we still need to see him against someone with great takedown defense. And he might also be too small for featherweight. Uh, think a move to bantamweight is wise. Um, agreed. I think he's a little small for featherweight. And look, he's going to get bigger. So maybe if he gets bigger, featherweight will make more sense, you know, at age 23, 24, 25. Uh, maybe bantamweight makes more sense now. Um, so I think, again, he's still trying to calibrate his weight class. He's still trying to figure things out. So let's let's let him do that. Let's give him the space to do that. And then when we can really tell that, like, okay, it wouldn't even be ethical to put James in a fight with, you know, some other guy or whatever, then, okay, then let's start doing it. But for right now, man, kid looks like he's got some promise to him. And I don't want to get in the way of that. Um, he's 20. Let's let's see what he can do. And I'm, I'm confident he can do a lot. Uh, someone says, with all the hype on Pico last week, their brightest prospect was probably Gallagher on the prelims. Agreed. Uh, the kid's only 20, but fighting amateur since he was 13 and looks to be improving with every fight. His ground game is really good for such a young guy. He's also doing a really good job promoting himself. It says a lot when you're just 7-0 and and calls the champ calls you out. Totally agreed. Totally agreed. But he's also getting the right kind of kinds of fights, you know? He's getting fights where it's a bit of a stylistic matchup favorable a bit, and they're getting incrementally harder, and he's showing not incremental improvement. He's showing, you know, exponential improvement over time. And so it all is working perfectly, you know. So they did great with Rory. They're doing great with James. They jacked up things with Aaron. But you can tell, what, what, do these, what does this side tell you about things? Taking time to do it the right way pays big, big dividends in the long run. Title fights in Bellator. That's an interesting question. Prior to his prior to this, excuse me, Bellator fight card, I was excited for the three title fights, not so much Bader Davis. However, after watching, I think the title being on the line in Bellator just doesn't add anything for me. If the fights are good, I enjoy it like any other, but there just isn't the same tension I feel when watching a UFC title fight. The stakes of winning a UFC belt are just so much higher. You win the UFC belt, you're basically the best in the world. When someone wins the Bellator belt, it's not that meaningful to me. The UFC belt is like the Champions League, and the Bellator seems like the Europa League. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. And during the Larkin fight and the Davis-Bader fight, I was constantly thinking that these guys are only fighting in Bellator because they paid more money than the UFC, which is perfectly fine, 
and therefore how much do they really care if they win or lose they have that contract they wanted well they still want to win and lose that that part i think is a little unfair that was their goal and they already achieved it i know that all fighters fight for money but in the ufc i can have my delusion of fighters fighting to be the best in the premier organization and the fact that those three openly left the door for better deals doesn't allow for my delusion so by being unfair to bellator and these fighters I think, okay yes and no let's say where you're not being unfair you're not being unfair and saying, look, even when the strike force belt was on the line, there was always a little bit like, okay, but what does exactly that mean? Like, we know it's something good. We know you're obviously talented, but it just doesn't feel like something grand. And Bellator is, I think, for the most part, because of that, always going to be looking to put these personality rivalries in place. I mean, competitive rivalries too, but um, driven by you know, a name versus a name. It's a little bit more like boxing than, a, than in that sense, right? It's Pacquiao, Mayweather versus oh, the WBA, the WBO, the IBF, the IBO title is on the line. It's it's a little bit like that. Um, there are things they can do to improve that, but, you know, they don't even know who their heavyweight champion is. And if it is, uh, not Volkov, if it is Minikov, he's not competing there. There's just a ton of problems. So um, I completely agree with you there that, that they're always going to be up against uh, a challenge on that side. On the other hand, Yes, guys are going to Bellator because they want bigger contracts. Fair, very fair. Totally fair. But I think it's a little bit unfair to say they're not out there trying. Those guys are absolutely trying their ass off. I didn't see one bit of slippage from Bader, Bader from the UFC to this level. I didn't see one bit of slippage from Phil Davis. And Larkin didn't look his best, but that's because Lima is a really good fighter. Um, so to me, at that part is a little bit unfair. I don't think these guys are being like, well, I'm getting paid, so what do I really care? No. They want to compete. They want to shine. They want to do well. These guys are, you cannot be in this business and fight the way these guys fight without the kind of killer mentality. Uh, now, maybe if one's a little bit older, you know, it's a little bit harder to say. But, you know, these guys are in their primes. They're fighting for titles. They Titles matter to these guys. Um, so, so you're, you're half, I think you're half defensible, half indefensible. Who wins these greatest fights never to happen? Fedor versus Randy in 2003. Probably Fedor. BJ versus Genki Sudo in 2004. BJ. Chuck versus Hendo 2005. Chuck. Brock versus Sap in 2007. Oof. God, both would be terrible in 2007. I guess I'll say Brock. Frankie versus Gill in 2011. That's still go Gill. Sorry, Frankie. There's a question here. I don't have time to answer it, but it's something we've been over before. At what point do organizations, commissions, and training camps need to step in and protect fighters from themselves? We all know Bellator can continue to promote someone like Fedor and that the UFC or an organization like Bellator can give BJ Penn another opportunity, but when do ethics need to take over? This is a problem we've discussed a number of times on this chat. It's a great one. I think corners are letting these guys down. I think commissions are not being nearly strenuous enough. Uh, and I think these promotions are also a little ghoulish in how they're handling this. You know, I, I, there's an open question about whether or not Vanderlei Silva should be fighting at all. Uh, so, you know, I mean, he keeps getting licensed. What, what, what can you say, you know? Um, but, but this is a problem in MMA generally. We don't have a great reflex about when to say no. We really don't, and we need to do a lot better, and everyone can do a lot better. The fighter themselves, the corner, the people in the, the the promoter, and the government. Everyone here is failing at least a little bit. 
But someone points out something here. So it should be up to the commissions, not the private companies. I've had this debate with fans, or at least this discussion. I wouldn't call it a debate. I've had this discussion with fans for a number of, of, of years, ultimately expecting the private actor to be the one where the buck really stops here. I just don't think is ever going to really work out as an effective strategy. The real responsibility lies with the athletic commissions. They are the final arbiter. They're the ones who are supposed to be disentangled from the promotional interest, although we all know that's not exactly true, but they have a certainly an obligation to act that way. Um, I, I believe that that's where the chief failings exist. Make sure my audio didn't get jacked up. That's that's where the, the major responsibility lies, is in that space. Um, so if I'm gonna hold any actor responsible, the one I'm gonna hold the most responsible, there's degrees, but the most responsible would be the government. I, I think, I would argue. Megan Anderson, what kind of personal issue would lead to dropping out of the biggest fight and opportunity of her career? This could have launched her into superstardom. I don't think that's true. And even a loss, if competitive, could have been a good thing for her. Please tell me her reason for dropping out is legit and wasn't just fear. Fear is capitalized here. I don't know why you've capitalized fear. Uh, you cannot drop out for fear. If you're going to drop out, you have to have a, a legitimate reason to do so. Um, no, it's not fear. Why would someone take a fight and then just a couple of weeks later be like, nah, I don't think so. Someone who has, you know, what, almost 15, 20 fights? That seems bizarre. I don't know why fans feel like this. I mean, okay, for let's take 100 cases where a fight falls through or a guy doesn't want to accept it. 1% of the time, where a case like Duran to me, you could probably attribute a degree of fear to it. The rest of the time, it might have some competitive issue. Um, this is not the right fight at the right time. But this schoolyard sense of, oh, I'm going to get hurt, almost never exists. Not completely no, but almost never exists. I, I don't think this is really an, an adult way of looking at it. Um, I don't know what the issue is. We'll look into it. I know some people were like, she got tested by USADA this week. That must be it. It takes weeks for those results to come in. That has, at this juncture... I'm not saying it's not a USADA test, but if it is a USADA test, it's not from one that happened this week. I can tell you that. So, so what? And we would probably would have heard about it, uh, by now. So, whatever it is, I'm sure it's legitimate. You know what? I don't have my phone on me, do I? Oh, I do. Let's see if she's. She was updating her. Uh, thingamajig, Instagram, on Instagram, straight flexing. Here, let's see. Here's what she said. She, this, this came out, I don't know, how long, 16 hours ago. I've been waiting for this fight a long time and finally got the opportunity to showcase my skills on the big stage, but unfortunately, due to some pressing personal reasons that are out of my control, it is not to be right now. I am no stranger to struggle, and this is the biggest struggle I've faced yet. But like I always do, I will come back stronger and better than before, and I will be coming straight for Chris and title and becoming the she capitalized title for no reason. Uh, and becoming the face of the UFC 145-pound division. I am determined and resolved to make history and shock the world. I'm coming for whoever has that belt. So there you go. That's the best I can tell you as well. John Jones's mom. Oh, man, that's a terrible, terrible story. With John Jones's mom passing away, will this affect his performance at UFC 214? Um, it's a reasonable question. Um, impossible to say at this point. I think it probably will in a way where it compels him to greatness. 
or uh, pushes him to greatness, I should say, but I don't, it could also totally uh, derail him. Uh, hard to say how he's dealing with it. Hard to say. You, you, without, it's not possible to answer this question without an additional piece of information. And I have not spoken to his coaches recently, nor have I spoken to him recently. So until I get a better sense of those things, I can answer it. But if you're wondering, you know, is this the kind of life-changing event that can really badly affect you? Uh, of course, the answer is yes. The answer is obviously yes. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of athletes compete. You know, Isaiah Thomas losing his sister and then going out there and still beating uh, the Wizards, right? I mean, um, guys can do it, right? And he played out of his mind for the most part. So it's certainly possible. I guess we'll just have to see ultimately how everything unfolds. Yeah, and then here's another person talking about Megan Anderson. She was just tested by USADA yesterday or the day before. Hmm. Yeah, takes weeks to come back. So there you go. I uh, was wondering if there'll be a time when you upload the video version of the Monday Morning Analyst to your iTunes channel. Uh, yeah, I forgot this week. Sorry. I have to do all that stuff myself. So between that and my radio show and everything else, I get a little bit confused and I forget. But I will not forget about this live chat. So there you go. Cyborg versus Avenger. All right. Give us your thoughts on this, Luke. I think Avenger will get steamrolled, but it'll at least be a fun action fight to watch. And why is it the only people they can get to fight Cyborg are women coming over from Invicta? <coughs> um. I actually think in some ways this is a better fight than the Anderson fight. I think Anderson has better upside long-term and obviously is a natural 145-er. So for a lot of reasons, uh, I'm looking forward to that fight down the road. I actually think this is a blessing. I mean, I don't know what her personal issues are, but competitively, this is something of a blessing in disguise because she has defensive issues. You go back and you watch her fight, she gets chewed up a little bit, Megan Anderson does. Not because she's not good but because she's still putting her game together. Um, she has time to resolve some of those things. So to me, this gives her some time to do that. Um, and Avenger is not going to do things she's not good at. Now, Cyborg has ridiculous takedown defense, and I think will win, and has a size advantage. But Avenger, you know exactly what she's going to do. She's going to come straight for her and try to take her down and see what she can do on, on top. And I'm looking forward to seeing what that looks like. Avenger is a uh, like Dan Kelly, man, is a tough old goat. Um, is a good wrestler, has good takedowns, has good passing, has good submissions. Um, so this should be this should be. I don't know how long it's going to last, but for as long as it does last, I think this will be a great fight. And Avenger didn't hesitate apparently at all in taking this contest. So to me, it's like, how can you not love that? All these women, I mean, we, we had literally the last champion of the weight class abdicated the belt and the weight class itself to avoid a fight with Cyborg. And here's Evanger being like, I'll knuckle up quickly. I don't care at all, you know. Uh, I don't know how you can't respect that. Um, there's a lot to like there, a whole lot to like there. So I still favor Cyborg to win for all the reasons aforementioned. But to me, this is a little bit better than the Anderson fight right now. The Anderson fight will make more sense long-term. And I'm happy to see Tanya Evinger get this opportunity and take advantage of it and run with it.
it's good for all involved, as far as I'm concerned. Someone says, you're on to something, this other person. With Invicta fighters, they are used to fighting in tiny venues for peanuts, so any opportunity against Chris seems worth it, regardless of the long odds. Correct. All right. Bellator Light Heavyweight Division. Has the Bellator Light Heavyweight Division shot itself in the balls with Vader and Davis playing out a complete snore fest? No. And to top it off, the equally dull King Mo will fight Vader next. I don't know that that's a fair characterization. It was promoted as a rival to the UFC's equally low on quality light heavyweight division. But it seems that Bellator have pulled out a few boring fighters where at least UFC have some knockout artists like Manuel Glover, AJ pre-retirement. So I guess just me and Manuel and Glover as well as up-and-coming stars like Serkinov, who just got knocked out. Bellator seems to just have the UFC dregs, who they couldn't and didn't want to sell, and have now palmed them off. It's pawned them off to Bellator, who will not be able to sell them either. Where can this division within Bellator go now? Up. I mean, this is, this is the classic 2007-era or 2008, 2009, I guess I should say we better, era, I hate strike force mentality from fans. This is the same thing playing out again. And look, you're allowed to like what you want to like. This is, if you don't like Beltor, I'm not here to talk you into it. But it's just weird to see the same patterns over and over and over again where, uh, you know, everyone's like, they're saying the exact same things in the exact same constructed way about Bellator that they said about Strike Force, and maybe because there are some obvious parallels there, I, I can acknowledge as much. But it seems just terribly jaundiced after seeing what Strike Force was able to do when it was, you know, um, absorbed by the UFC. Now, I don't think Bellator and Strike Force are equivalent organizations, but here's my point. Number one, even if Davis and Bader put on a snore fest, I don't think Davis versus King Mo will necessarily be that bad. Maybe actually be quite good. Number two, if you sign guys like that, it makes it easier to sign other ones who might be disaffected or seem to get a better deal in going across there, right? As every time one of those guys makes the jump, it makes it easier for the next one to make the jump. So that, in that sense, it's partially an investment. These are guys in the case of Ryan Bader who fought on Spike TV. Now, was this fight in particular great? Sure. But Ryan Bader's had some super exciting fights. I mean, the Alir Latifi fight was just exactly that. Um, and even the beating he put on Noguera was kind of, you know, reasonably easy to watch. So I, I just feel like, y yes, that Phil Davis fight, uh, was it entertaining? No, not no, it wasn't. Um, but I don't think that the division is crippled now because that guy is there. Um, whether or not it's as good as the UFCs, you can make a debate. And, of course, I don't think that it is. I mean, the mere presence of Cormier and Jones and, and Gustafson challenged that. But certainly what you can say is uh, – um, there's some very, very talented guys in there. Phil Davis, when he went over there, had a bunch of exciting fights. I think Davis Bader will get the exact same things. Um, there'll be always some matchups that are boring, but that's true for any organization. So I just feel like this is an incredibly jaundiced way of looking at it. The, the divisions between Bellator and UFC are not equivalent. They're not even close. But the Bellator division is a lot better now. It makes sense to invest in any of your divisions, especially when you've got guys who have fought on Spike TV before. Um, and it makes sense to recruit fighters whose recruitment makes it easier to recruit other ones. 
Number one contender for Mighty Mouse, Luke, with Mayweather-McGregor being made for late August, the UFC has decided to scrap their plans for Seattle pay-per-view that was going to be headlined by Mighty Mouse. This buys them more time to establish a rightful contender for this title. Do you think the winner of Pettis Moreno will get the shot? If not, who do you think will get the shot? I would love to see that guy get the shot. Uh, that I think that fight goes down in what? Mexico City in August 5th, if I'm not mistaken. I think that's right. Uh, I love that fight. I love everything about Pettis, Pettis Moreno, a guy who has had, you know, taken his time to really mature his skill set in Pettis and has done exactly that. Moreno, a guy who looks like he's been shot out of a cannon and he seems to be getting better at warp speed. I like everything about that. Um, this is an excellent contest. And sure, you know, guys get title shots a little early at flyweight, but what are you going to do, man? I mean, you got to keep the division moving. So, yeah, I'd be totally in favor of that. I think that's a great fight to do those with those guys, and uh, I love it. I love it. Uh, if they wanted to do Ray Borg, I guess I wouldn't cry about it, but sure. Pettis versus Moreno is like, that's the one. They announced Dos Santos versus Nganu for September 9th. I think they did, UFC 215. Someone asked what I think about it. I think Nganu is about to show up as a serious heavyweight contender. That's what I think. Casey situation in Texas. As I've been trying to follow the Courtney Casey situation and trying to understand what happened. I have been constantly baffled by the decision by the Texas Department of Licensing and Regulation. Have you seen something like this ever happen before, especially since they basically went against the USADA standards? And why do you think Texas decided to act like that? Because they're not a scientific body. You guys know I've got my issues with anti-doping. I've got my issues with USADA. But if you had to ask which has a better grasp of modern scientific um, procedures and which incorporates more modern scientific data, in the way in which they adjudicate issues or hand out punishments, the answer is obviously USADA, like far and away. This Texas commission had a um, a bogus standard of four to one um, for the testosterone and epitestosterone, or, or vice versa, I should say. I can't remember which direction it went. But in any case, they had a bogus standard and they just went ahead and enforced it without additional testing to verify the claims. I mean, everything about this is completely jacked up. So the very standard is unscientific. This four to one standard when you saw to use a six to one, right? Because there's all different manner of ways in which you can get a number like four to one that happen naturally. And you need additional testing once you get that flagging to verify what it is. So not only do they have a completely jacked up standard that is not within the norms of modern scientific understandings of the human body, they didn't go through with additional testing until the fighter requested it, I believe. And even if they had done that with the B sample, she was totally exonerated by that, but it didn't matter because they went ahead and announced a punishment and then levied a sanction against her without that additional information. I mean, it is absolutely negligent in every imaginable context. Um, and frankly, I asked her when she was on my radio show, I think it was last Friday, and I asked her straight up, are you considering litigation here? 
Now, she was a little bit noncommittal about that because it seems like a pain in the ass and, and maybe she'll pass, but I I don't know what her um, likely avenues are to some kind of either compensation or apology or um, recompense uh, are available through litigation, but if it was me, I'd at least explore it. And if I thought I had a good chance of getting something out of it, I absolutely take them to court, no doubt about it, because it's not just getting what you're owed. You need to shame them to the point where they don't do that to somebody else. Because if they feel like they can get away with this with impunity, then they'll just try. These commissions, man, they are set up as these regulatory bodies that you can't do anything about except just not use them. That's it. There's no real other way to send them any kind of message. And frankly, if you don't use them and they don't collect enough money and they reduce their overall services, who does that hurt? It hurts the fighters who need you know, proper oversight. They need tax dollars and monies collected from the normal course of business to be able to provide an effective standard of oversight. So it's, it's, it's a real problem. It's a real problem. There's, as we've seen in the case with Nick Diaz, when he was sentenced, you know, when they were like, when he was like auto warm BA coming back from North Korea, you know, and they sentenced him to a lifetime ban or they, well, they tried anyway. And then they settled on five effing years. Um, the only thing that really mattered after the fact was, I mean, I'm sure there were back channel discussions between the UFC and the commission, but really what it looked like was um, media and public pressure, right? That's the only, <laughs> that's the only thing you can do to get them. And you can't manufacture that every time they do something that uh, seems a little questionable. It really only happens to that extent once they do something egregiously bad. And so everybody else gets, uh, you know, an unequal standard of treatment. So again, I, I mean, I can't tell Casey how to live her life, but were it me and I thought I had a reasonable chance. And if the UFC, in fact, let's say was willing to pay my uh, litigation costs, oh, it'd be so quick, so quick to take them to court, you know, for whatever, um, you know, defamatory claims they can prove. All right, let's see here. God damn it, this phone. So I was asking, what phone do you have? Yes, I have the Google Pixel. That is what I have. Just looking at these questions here. Fox renewing rights with the UFC. Uh, Luke, with the end of the broadcast deal with Fox coming to an end July 1st next year, not this one, do the recent layoffs at Fox impact affect the potential to Fox, excuse me, the potential for Fox to renew their rights to the UFC? I don't think that will ultimately matter. Do you foresee a different broadcast entity getting control of the UFC or will Fox maintain control? Well, if that deck that got released was any indication, they they are at least open to the idea, if not outright intending to have a number of suitors. So some events on ESPN, some events, let's say, on Fox, some events on TNT, right? Something like that. Uh, is WMIMG expecting too much money for a new deal? Well, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think there were some estimates that they were looking for 
something like four times their current total um, annually, which would be in the sort of 400 million a year mark. I think they'll be lucky to get half that, or maybe maybe they can get a little more than half, two, 250. I don't think they're going to get a whole lot more than that. And that would require them cannibalizing some of their higher end product to make that happen, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. You've got Pacquiao fighting on ESPN this weekend. That's kind of an interesting thing, right? But yeah, very, very, very interesting. And someone below this has a list of all of the ESPN obligations that they're on the hook for. There's a big article uh, written by, uh, what's his name? I forget. He lives here in the DC area, but um, Orioles fan, John Orand, uh, Sports Business Journal, talking about ESPN's future, how they plan to stave off rivals. And there's an argument to be made that they have overpaid for certain sports properties. But what ESPN says is that the ability to have this umbrella of properties that they are known for um, allows them to project a certain image of you know, superiority in the marketplace. What they want to do is create a moat around the ESPN kingdom and they want to dig it deep. And they dig it deep when they pay for SEC rights, when they pay for ESPN or uh, NFL rights or MLB rights or that kind of thing. So we'll see if they're at all interested in UFC and if they are, to what extent. I, I suspect that they will they might be. I don't think it would all be crazy to see them on ESPN, but how much and in what capacity, I don't know. I don't think laying off the writers ultimately is anything they're overly concerned about. Number one, the UFC on Fox apparatus was starting to exert a lot more editorial independence than they had previously. And I discussed this on my radio show yesterday. Um, sort of a bit of a different question. I think that Fox went overboard. Fox Sports went overboard in letting writers go. I do think it's good to have guys um, as talented as Damon Martin on your staff because... Um, you want some kind of news desk operation and you want a guy who's an OG who has deep contacts, can break news, which he has done, who can write up things where if Colin Coward's going to bloviate about the top five times Tiger Woods has had a DUI or whatever, you still got a legitimate news operating service in there, which they've now jettisoned. I mean, that's what they've lost here is they essentially didn't merely get rid of writers. They got rid of their news desk. Um, not totally, but they fundamentally transformed it. And I don't think that's right. However, some of the things that Fox Sports has done, some of the things I think are totally on the money. Number one, they are merging slowly over time. their linear TV operations with their dot-com office. Uh, as I mentioned before, uh, years ago, I went for a job interview at the WashingtonPost.com because the two used to be segregated. The WashingtonPost.com was this operation that was in Arlington, Virginia, and the the paper was downtown, and now they're the exact same thing. Um, but that took time to put them together. And of course, the influx of cash from Jeff Bezos certainly helped. But that was a necessary and critical step. I think I think they're right about that. I really do. I think they're fundamentally right about that. Number two, they're saying rather than you know top ten QBs to look out for in free agency, it'll be like Colin Coward's QBs to look out for in free agency. Um, they're sort of putting brand identity or you know superstar. Uh, I wouldn't call Colin a journalist, but superstar media figure um, entity, they're branding that over their their ordinarily sort of magazine style content. Um, that makes sense as well. Like if you want to, you want a career in media, I've said this before, like, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a conscious step I've taken to uh, put myself out there. I put my name on my show, not on these podcasts because they're a little bit different, but I've got my own radio show with my own name on it. Certainly my name 
features prominently in my social media channels. Um, you know, you need to you need to develop an identity that people can know and rally around or or hate, but you need some kind of forward projection of your of of who you are. Um, and I think they're doubling down on that. Now they're doubling down on that, and a lot of guys who are just totally incompetent, so they're giving it a bad name. But that doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. But the truth is about video online. Um, it is the future. It is the present and it is absolutely the future. It's easy to, much easier to monetize. Um, it's easier to produce at scale, depending on what kind of video you're doing. Uh, it is easier to cross platforms, right? It's easy to watch a video on your phone, on your tablet, on your laptop, on your TV. You know, reading an article is a little bit more of a challenge in that way. Um, so for all those reasons, I think they're making some adept moves. Now, again, I think they've gone overboard. You know, getting rid of all your writers seems like way is like an exaggerated, cartoonish way to handle it, and especially letting people go as talented uh, as Damon. There's some other guys on that staff that are really talented as well. I, I don't understand that at all. But, um, um, ultimately, those moves they're making, I think you're going to see a lot of other media entities copy even more. I don't. I, I think they're hardly alone in that. Um, maybe not to the extent where. You know, the problem what they're doing is they're like letting Shannon Sharp dictate MMA coverage for them in a way. And that is a problem because there's just no way to know if you can trust what they're doing. There's no way to know if you can understand or believe anything that comes out of it. And so that's why you need someone like Damon who, you know, is a real um, you know, total expert in this field with, and, or fiction um, and understands the nuances. I think losing that is bad for you. Um, so they made a mistake on that front, but I understand a general move to video. I understand a general branding around star personalities, and I understand a merging of .com with linear TV. I, and on, on that level, I totally get it. Um, but I don't know that it will prevent the UFC from signing or not. Question about Mohamed Kaladov. Where does he rank in the currently current middleweight division? I don't know, top ten somewhere, top between top seven and ten or something. Maybe a little bit outside of that. Question. You said Kiesa wasn't intelligently defending. Don't you think intelligent defending and grappling is different than in striking? Maybe. Let's see what you mean. You can just wait for an opponent to get tired or give up. Uh, sometimes. Sometimes. Look at Wonderboy Woodley. He just waited. Maybe Kiesa, well, you could argue he could have stopped that fight too, by the way. because he, he even admitted he went out. I think he woke up. Maybe Kiesa felt he could have done the same. Why the hurry by Mario? If he passes out, nothing happens to him. Well, I think the risks are low, but I wouldn't say nothing happens to him. There's no brain damage. Again, not a given. It's different when guys with good chins take the strikes. That's just dangerous. Letting a guy gasp by punching you is different than waiting for a choke. I'm not saying he could have waited successfully, but it's not up to the ref to decide with choke since there is no harm. Right, but here's the point. Mario thought he was out, from what I can tell. So it's not like he intervened, I think, when he thought, oh, this guy is, this guy is done hand fighting. I'm just going to go ahead and do you a solid. I think what he saw was Mario was a black belt in jiu-jitsu. I think he's seen that probably a gazillion times. 
I'm not saying that the call was perfect. I think it took a little more fine-tuned eye to really get it right. Big John seems to have a very fine-tuned eye, right? Um, you could have let it go a little bit longer. But let me clear up some misconceptions for you. And it's hard to explain. Waiting out a submission is not a good strategy. Nine, eight times out of ten, it's going to backfire on you, if not more than that. Very few times, if you are hurt and someone is cranking on a submission, can you just let it go? Now, you see it in MMA, but you got to remember, in MMA, this is an exaggerated look into things where guys will let limbs break. They will go out and come back to life, both with strikes and with chokes. Um, they're happy to do that. They're happy to do that. Matt Hughes slamming Carlos Newton. He's out. Wakes up when he slams him. Hey, I win. You know, They'll do crazy, crazy, scary, dangerous things. The vast majority of times when you someone has a locked-in submission, an arm fully extended, knees pinched, heels to rear end, elbow uh, right over where it needs to be, past the hips, ass butt cheeks squeezed together, driving in the air, thumb pointed up, bro, you're not going to wait that out. You're going to get your shit broken. There's no such thing as waiting that out. Something terrible is going to happen, right? And you know when the referee should intervene, we can have a debate about that, but you're not waiting that out. You're just delaying the inevitable. And in fact, you know, that, that's why you have tapping in the sport to prevent catastrophic injury like that. You're not waiting anything out. Now, if it's a misapplied submission, okay, no, there's a bit of a different debate. I mean, show that footage to any black belt and ask them if that was, if any part of what Kevin Lee was doing was misapplied or not super duper deep ask them see what kind of response you get i would be shocked shocked now they might hedge and say well you know look we don't know if kiesa was out you know it's hard to say but just ask them to comment on kevin lee's mechanics body triangle foot behind the leg on the opposite side not mat side where it needed to be gable gripped off an initial bicep choke Elbow damn near dead center. Gable gripped behind the guy's head, rolling face down, and hit the other dude's eyes shut and hands came out. I, don't, I, I would be very, 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 very surprised if any kind of credential grappler said, well, not saying we don't know because none of us know, right? We don't know, but that there was something misapplied there. Like, this is something you just weighed out. I think the over, over, overwhelming majority of them would say um, this was an inevitability. And I firmly believe that. And I think the mistake that Mario made was, as you watch the Monday Morning Analyst, it's three stages. It's hand fighting. It's the hands come out front when they're about to go limp, and then they all together go limp. He didn't wait for that. But I think he thought, if you... Let me tell you something, folks. If somebody has you in a choke and you stop hand fighting, that is borderline surrender. That is borderline surrender. I'm not saying that Kiesa was like, I'm surrendering. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is if you're getting choked and you're losing consciousness and your body's beginning to take over an involuntary response here, it's your body's way of saying, that's it. Um, you know, it, you, you can look at certain subs when they're misapplied or a warm bar and people have rolled out. I get it. I get it. You, you, there's lots of examples in MMA, but these people are going to extreme. I mean, literally, Justine Kish is literally taking a dump on herself to get out of chokes. You know, this is an, I mean, a, a, a obscene level of uh, perseverance, but it, she was always always moving it's not the same as 
Not the same. All right, let's go to these questions. Someone says, you should listen to the Shaw rant on Fox and thoughts on Shields cyborg sparring. What rant are y'all talking about with Shab? Can someone link me? I would love to see it. Um, how do you like starring in the first Derek Lewis IG feature? Well, actually, that's a UFC fighter edits feature that a bunch of people just took. Now, I don't think he minds that Derek Lewis took it, but uh, actually, that came from an Instagram account called UFC Fighter Edits, and they're hilarious too. Uh, and I thought it was hysterical. I showed it to my wife, and even she laughed. So that's great. David Martin was able to provide unique context to the rise of Ohio fighters like Stipe. Local perspective is important. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is what I'm saying. You don't want to get rid of core competency guys, which is exactly what he was. That Again, I'm trying to be clear about this. I'm not endorsing everything they did. I'm endorsing some of the strategic um, vision, but I think a lot of it was also short-sighted. I think that's the point I'm trying to make. Will the Redskins sign Cousins to an extension before the season starts? Nope. Nope. They sure won't. And watch this. You know what they'll do? They'll leak the final number. I guarantee you they'll do this. The team will leak the final number that Cousins turned down as a way to get the fans to turn against them. Oh, how could you turn this down, you know? I guarantee it. I get, mark my words. They're going to do that. They're going to do that. They're going to leak to the post or somebody else. And... uh and they're, they're going to try and get the fans to turn against Cousins. And frankly, I don't blame Cousins for not resigning. They've treated him like crap from day one, and I'm going to be sad to see him go, but, you know. What are you going to do? Uh, what is the most underutilized move in MMA? Knees to the body on the ground. Now, it's hard because sometimes you need to have your knee and your hip close to their knee and their hip, but... Yes. Um, is the Shinya Aoki versus Gary Tonin grappling match a useful analogy to Mayweather-McGregor? In a way, in a way. We talked about this before. This is, this is what I think is probably going to happen. Probably. Again, I don't really know. My hunch is that Conor will lose, but he'll lose in such a way where in the end, it's no big deal. Like when MMA fighters go to Metamorris, um, you know, Josh Barnett beat Dean Lister, but there was a big weight advantage there. Uh, which you, and I, we, I know people are like he's bigger here, but it's the same weight class. So I'm, I think I think we're talking like, you know, tens of pounds in the case of Lister versus Barnett. Um, so, also the rule set was a little bit different, right? Because it was sub only, and so. Um, so I think what eventually happened is he'll lose, but it'll. It'll be like no big deal, you know. The one thing I will say is people keep talking about like what's an MMA striker going to look like in boxing. I do think that is something of an interesting question because if you had to ask yourself, what did we find out from MMA fighters competing against grapplers in Metamorris? We found out that if they were having trouble on the ground, they would use their ability to get up off the bottom that they got from MMA to just restart on the feet. You saw that, for example, in the JT Torres-Rory McDonald fight or grappling match, right? They just get up off the bottom, just right up off the bottom. Um, 
So I think you might find that there is some interesting wrinkle to MMA fighters striking in boxing. I don't know what it's going to be, but my hunch is that, yeah, like a specialist versus a jack of all trades, you know, there's probably one direction that's going to go. Uh, and Gary, I, 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 that's why I didn't want to watch Tony versus, I, you can look at my Twitter feed, like I even said it, it was like, you know, I'm, I, Tonin is a way better grappler than Shinyaoki. Like, way better. Uh, that one was like a no-brainer from the beginning. He would have to make monumental errors to get submitted. Striking is a little bit different because that one misinterpretation can put you down. So it's a little bit dicier. But, but yeah, there's probably a lot to take from those experiences. Rank these fighters by level of success if they move up in weight. So you've got Jones, Cormier, Gus, Weidman, also, I think you meant Aldo, and Rockhold. Probably Jones, then Cormier, because it would be a heavyweight. Gus third. Uh, Rockhold would have some. Weidman behind him. And Aldo, I don't know he'd have a whole lot of success at lightweight. Not that I'd say I wouldn't want to see it, but... As much as you won't want to admit it, does CM Punk have the best UFC entrance? Not only do I not want to admit it, I don't have to admit it because it's not true. Uh, if not, who does? I don't know. Virtually anyone else. Um, Tae Young Bang. Oh, I don't know. Uh, Michelle Quinones. Um, let me think of somebody else. Um, Jeremy Kimball. Any of those guys. How about Fedor versus Rampage next? How about no? Uh, what fight on paper coming up or fight that's happened this year do you think is most likely to be fight of the year? Ooh. Uh, I hold high hopes for DC Jones. Mm, I'm curious about Weidman versus Gastelum, how that might play out. Um, I'm sure some of you are probably think that about Lawler versus Cerrone. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm a little bit. Someone says Faber has the best walkout. Yeah, that's a great one. He, much better. There, good choice. Um, BJ, fuck, BJ has a better walkout than CM Punk. I mean, <laughs> I like how people are like, bro, 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 you got to admit CM Punk got a killer walkout. No, I don't. I don't have to do that at all. Uh yeah, but probably Lawler versus Cerrone's got some of the ingredients there. Um, so, somewhere around there. There's a weird, transparent, circular blotch on your camera. All right. Worst analysis on Mayweather McGregor. Skip Bayless. Floyd has never fought somebody from the MMA. Gave me, he wrote, deuce chills. Do we have to have a deuce conversation again? Thoughts on the 214 poster? It's okay. Not great. What was sadder, BJ, Fedor, Herrig, post-fight, Hendricks, or Cerrone injury? BJ. I don't think there's anything sad about Herrig post-fight. I mean, I, she's trying to make a, a serious point whether you agree or not. That's not the same as some kind of like, um, you know, watching BJ and Fedor is just like, it's just painful. Painful to your soul, you know. And certainly the stuff that's happening with Johnny Hendricks, man, he's in a really bad spot, you know. Courtney Casey have any way to gain back some of her reputation after the drug test debacle in Texas? If you find other people who have had false positives come out, and then, of course, everyone goes ahead and tries to fix the scenario, 
after the fact. They make some progress, but they really usually never get back everything that they've lost. So what I would say is there's probably some things she can do, but there are also probably some things she can't. She is partially stuck with this forever, which is why if I was her, litigation would be a serious option I'd be considering. Which actor would you pick to play Conor McGregor in his documentary movie? Jesus. Uh, <laughs> James McElvoy? I know he's Scottish, but he could probably do the accent. And I don't know. He seems like the kind of guy who could get into it. I know some people might be like, Colin Farrell, bro, but nah. I want someone a little bit wiry, you know? Kevin Lee versus Al Iaquinta at UFC 213. It's a little too late for that. But it's a hell of a fight. Hell of a fight. Given the depth of their 170-pound division, could we see a revival of Bellator's tournament? Um, the heavyweight tournament was interesting, but ultimately marred by fights that were never made or injuries or expect unexpected losses. But uh, you might... I don't think... I don't think... How about this? Nothing in the next year, but maybe something in the next two to three years, I think might be possible. With the exception of Conor McGregor, is Derek Lewis the funniest fighter in the UFC? Yeah, but in a different way. He's got like dry humor, you know, and like sort of absurdist humor. Conor's got like really slick, you know, biting attacks. Philippines just passed a bill. You must sing the anthem with passion or, or jail. By the way, we play it before movies in the cinemas. Well, I'm not going to go to the Philippines. Uh, does BJ Penn end up in Bellator if the UFC lets him go? I really hope not. If that happens, we would have to have a word with Scott Coker about what he's doing. Um, surely Bellator is better off having veterans tournament to stop the mismatch we saw last week. Uh, something to be said for that, but you saw BJ in a fair matchup and you saw how that went. People are doing a bunch of, uh, photoshops of me making myself go red, which was inevitable. Could you really have called, I mean, could you really have called Zach Freeman, an underdog, as he had 10 title fights and had just fought for an RFA title. Well, you could have called him a misapplied underdog, but if you looked at the rate, the odds, which is what defines whether or not he's an underdog, uh, yes. Now, if you wanted to say, I recognize he's an underdog, but whoever made him an underdog is an idiot, that'd be another thing you could say. And all of us are idiots for not recognizing that. Um, but technically, if the odds say he's the underdog, that's what is universally widely considered to be what, what defines what. You know, now you could say, well, he's the betting underdog. He's not the underdog in my mind. Okay. You could say he's not the underdog in my mind, but for the purposes of public discussion, what the odds makers say usually defines whether or not it is or it isn't. All right. If you've got any additional questions or comments, you can email me LukeThomasNews at gmail.com. You can also uh, follow me on Twitter at LThomasNews. Thank you guys so much for watching. I will put this up on uh, iTunes. I apologize about the Monday morning analyst, but that's still up here on this channel. Subscribe to MMA Fighting. Share this video around. Give it a like. And, uh, yeah, I will uh, see you donkeys on Monday. Until then, stay